Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God for this Sunday as we find it in our epistolary lesson. Read there in Paul's letter to the Romans, the 11th chapter, especially the 33rd verse. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, dear friends, you who are here in God's house this morning, and you also Christian friends who are worshiping with us by means of the radio. Today, as I have mentioned, the Christian Church is celebrating Trinity Sunday. This is the Sunday set aside so that Christians may take a look at their God and ask themselves, who is God? Is God a God worthy of praise and adoration and thanksgiving? Trinity Sunday brings to an end the festival half of the church year. We divide the regular church year into the festival half and also the non-festival half. You remember this church year began in the Advent season, and in the Advent season we prepared ourselves for the great festival of the blessing of Jesus coming into the world, his birthday. And then, you know, came the Epiphany season, when we celebrated the festival of Epiphany, when the Gentiles came and they found that Christ was also their Lord and their Savior. And then we went into the Lenten season, and there came Palm Sunday, when our Christ rode into Jerusalem. And then came Good Friday, the very anniversary when he suffered and died for the sins of the world, followed by Easter, the festival of the resurrection. Forty days later, then came the Ascension, which we celebrated. Ten days after the Ascension came Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the festival that we celebrated last Sunday. Today now comes the festival of the Trinity. This is a bit different from the other festivals in that it does not commemorate any one great fact in history. But this is a festival of the Christian Church when we pause and we take a look at our God and we look at him and we ask ourselves, what is God like? Is God worthy of our praise? Is he worthy of our love? Is God worthy of our obedience? And this morning we are going to have the little Jew from Tarsus up in Cilicia answer the question for us. When we look at Paul, who was also the great war horse of the Christian church, and we ask him, Paul, is God worthwhile? Is God a God who is worthy of our love and of our honor and of our praise? The little Jew from up in Cilicia Way would answer you and me, God is a great God. And God is worthy of our love and he is worthy of our praise and worthy of our thanksgiving. And all because this is what Paul found in him. And he goes into this doxology, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In simple English, Paul of Tarsus says, God is a great God. God is worthy of your love and of your admiration because look at the riches of his wisdom and of his knowledge. Oh, it is so deep, says Paul, the depth of it. 
It is so immense. It is so limitless. It is absolutely so unlimited. It is deeper than the ocean itself. It is so vast. It is absolutely so immense that the best that we can do is only to scratch the surface of his intellect. We can only grope. We can never fully understand it. We can never fully grasp it. We can never fully digest it. And so on Trinity Sunday, Paul would say to you and me, God is a God worth knowing. Consider the riches of the depth of his wisdom and of his knowledge. It is deeper than the ocean. It is vast, it is limitless, it is immense. And yet you and I on Trinity Sunday and looking at those words of Paul, we may say to ourselves, well, we'd like to believe that God is a God worth knowing because of the depth of his wisdom and of his knowledge. But we say, look at the world. Look what the world says about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Isn't it true that the world looks at you and me as Christians and says, you Christians are always talking about the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. You're talking about its immensity. You're talking about its vastness. You're trying to say that you cannot ever fully comprehend it. And yet the world says the wisdom of God God is nothing but nonsense. The world says it's only foolishness. It is ridiculous what you Christians call the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Well, if God's wisdom and knowledge are ridiculous, if again these things are foolishness, if these things are nonsense, then you and I would have to say that God is not a God worth knowing. And yet Saul of Tarsus says, Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and of his knowledge. Could it be possible that when the world hears of the riches of God's wisdom and understanding, that the world in calling it nonsense does not realize that the wisdom and the knowledge of God are a higher wisdom, a wisdom that the world has never dreamed of? Perhaps as we look at the wisdom and the knowledge of God that you and I will see that here is wisdom and here is knowledge that is so far above the wisdom of the world that no man of the world, regardless of his intellectual acumen, regardless of his attainments, has ever even dreamed of this kind of wisdom and this kind of knowledge. This morning on Trinity Sunday, uh, let's look at the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let's see whether it isn't a higher wisdom, whether it isn't something that the world of intellect has never even dreamed of or thought of. Would you like to see some of the wisdom of God and have it mentioned well, that the world calls nonsense but only because it has never even thought of such wisdom? Here's the first thing. The wisdom and the knowledge of God has revealed unto us that God is one God, and yet at the same time he is three persons. Today is Trinity Sunday. Today is the Sunday when we stop and we look at our God and we say, We have one God. Hero is with the Lord, our God is one Lord. And yet at the same time, this one God reveals himself as having three persons, as being three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that these three are one, and yet they are distinct. There is not three gods, there is one God, and yet three persons in the world stand and say, see, that is nonsensical, that doesn't make sense, that is foolishness, that is ridiculous. And yet you and I stand and we say to the world, is there any religion that is man-made that has a three-in-one God? 
Is there any human mind that has ever conceived that God could be one God and yet at the same time three persons at the same time? The world, if it's going to label the Trinity as being something nonsensical, would have to prove that the world thought of it first and that the world discarded it as being absolutely unfit for human intellect. And yet there is no Trinity in any other religion. There are a multiplicity of gods, but not one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so to the world, God says, here is knowledge, here is wisdom that is above the knowledge and wisdom of the world. Here is wisdom that no human being has ever thought of. And think of the wisdom of God in revealing himself as one God in three persons that you and I cannot accurately understand, that you and I cannot fully comprehend to be sure, because who knows the mind of God? Who has ever given advice to God? And then who has ever given something to God that God in turn must give us something back? And our God reveals himself in this wisdom and knowledge that is above human wisdom, that again the world has never dreamed of that he is an eternal God that God is without beginning and without ending. No human being has ever dreamed that God could be like that, that there was never a time when God didn't exist, there never will be a time when God will not exist, that God is all-powerful, that God can do anything. God has revealed that He, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that again, God knows everything. There is in God all knowledge, nothing is hidden from His eyes, that God is a God of perfect wisdom, that God uses His knowledge in the very best possible way, that God never makes any mistake. Oh, what a God he is, that God is everywhere present, all of God all over at the same time. The world stands and says that's nonsense because we cannot comprehend such a God, and yet the world must look up at a wisdom that is a higher wisdom. No man has ever dreamed that God could fill heaven and earth. God a person, God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, everywhere at the same time. It defies the imagination of man, and yet here is wisdom. When Paul of Tarsus saw it, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God is a holy God. No human being ever conceived of a holy God. Look at the gods of all man-made religions, and they are gods like unto men. They are gods that are sinful. They are gods, again, guilty of the same things, the same transgressions as are human beings. But here is a God who is holy without sin. Here is a God who reveals himself as a righteous God, a God that is always fair. He never plays favorites. And then our God has revealed something about himself that no human brain has ever conceived, and that he is a God of love. Again, I challenge you, go into any religion on the face of this earth. Go into any religion. You can spot it as a man-made religion apart from Christianity because no religion has the word love in it. There isn't a human being on the face of the earth right now, I care not his intellectual attainments, who has ever dreamed that God could love him. God has revealed himself as a God of love. This is the God who, again, has a depth of wisdom deeper than the ocean itself, so immense, so inexhaustible, so limitless, that you and I stand and say he's a God worth knowing because he's also a God who is trustworthy, a God who keeps his promises. And the word of God reveals that in this wisdom and in this knowledge of God, God tells us that God the Father created the universe that he created it for himself, that it exists by his guidance and strength, and that it shall accomplish the goal for which God did create it. Paul could only say in his doxology, for of him and through him and to him are all things. 
God created the universe out of nothing. He spoke by the power of his word. And the world says that's foolishness. And yet our God, here is a wisdom that is above human wisdom, that God brought something out of nothing, that God sustains this universe, that he, by his laws, which are nothing but the expressions of his will, that God keeps this universe intact and that it shall be for him for the honor and glory and praise of his name. That's the God that the little Jew up in Tarsus and Cilicia saw. And that's why when he looked at the immensity of God, he says, oh, the depth of the riches. How deep the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This wisdom of God, is it nonsense? Is it foolishness? Is it something ridiculous? Or again, is it heavenly wisdom that is above the wisdom of mankind? And because on Trinity Sunday you and I see the depth of God's riches in his wisdom and in his knowledge, and we say to ourselves, it is immense, and we can never completely grasp it, we can only scrape the surface. Well, therefore, when Trinity Sunday comes, and this is the Sunday when we honor God, we ought to say, God is a God worth knowing. And when we honor him as our God, then we begin to realize that he is the only true God. You and I have never seen God, have we? And yet, how can we know that he is the only true God? For the very obvious reason that in this wisdom and in this knowledge which God has revealed about himself, you and I find a God that we have never dreamed of, a God that you and I can never even hope exists, and yet a God that is perfect in all things that you and I would never add one thing to him. And when we realize that he is the only true God, what does it mean for us today? Doesn't it mean this, that we can face the future without worry and without fear and without questioning God's guidance into our life? Oh, sometimes when sickness and adversity come to us, we say, why did God send it to me? And we look at our lives and we say, yes, I know that I'm a sinner, but I have never deliberately offended God. I have worked in his kingdom. I have tried to be a child of God to the best of my ability. And why has God allowed these things to come? But when you and I see the immensity of God's wisdom and power, and we know that nothing happens in our life except by his permission, and we look at little Saul from Tarsus and we realize that there was the man, the great war horse of the Christian church, who knew what it was to have a thorn in the flesh and who knew again that God's grace was able to sustain him. He realized that he couldn't understand the wisdom of God in his life, but he knew this, that God was not punishing him and he knew that God was correcting him, a making of him what God wanted. He realized that God was refining his life as God refines your life and as he refines mine, that in the refinements that come, God can see his image in your life and mine. We can face the future unafraid without worry, without questioning and asking why God allows things to come into your life and mine, because we can stand on Trinity Sunday and say he's a God worth knowing. Look at the depth of his wisdom and knowledge. It's deeper than the ocean, it's immense, it's vast, and a God who is that big in the great revelation of his knowledge and of his will is a God that is bigger than any need that arises in my life. And you and I can have that joy and that peace which the world cannot give and which the world doesn't understand. Today, it's an unusual festival. It doesn't commemorate any event, but this is the festival of the Trinity when we take a look at our God and we look at him and we say, is he a God worth knowing? Is he a God that I need in my life or can I live without him? And when Saul of Tarsus, the little Jew from up Cilicia way, looked at him, he could only burst out and say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. Paul said, let me tell you, God is a God worth knowing. He's worthy of honor and praise. Look at him because his wisdom and his knowledge, they're vast. They're deeper than the ocean. Again, they are immense. 
And you and I cannot ever completely understand or grasp. We can only look and see. Why? Because have you ever seen the wisdom of God, what God has revealed, the things that we know of that the world calls nonsense, but only because the world doesn't realize that it never dreamed of? Here's the second thing. The wisdom and the knowledge of God have revealed that God's Son, Jesus Christ, atoned for the sins of the world. The world looks and says, you Christians, when you talk about Christ and Calvary, you're talking nonsense. You're talking something that is foolishness. You're talking something that is so ridiculous that it is not worthy for the intellect of man. And yet you and I look at them and we say, when a man looks at Calvary and a man rejects Calvary, and when a man looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and rejects him because it's foolishness, that man must be able to say that he thought of that that he thought of a Christ and of a Calvary, that he rejected it because it was not even something uh, that was in keeping with the human intellect. But I ask you, go into any religion on the face of the earth and you'll find two things absent. There will be no Christ and there will be no cross. There will be no Savior. And yet you and I stand and we look at this wisdom of God and we say, who was this Jesus on the cross? And the word of God says he was very God, a very God, King of kings and Lord of lords. And your intellect and mind may say, but how could one man atone for the sins of the world? And again, we look at him and God answers, because he was God. Because he was no less than uncreated God, the Son of our great trinity, he was of more value than the human race. And then our minds say, but how could he, when he died on the cross, bear the equal of an eternity in hell for the human race? And as we stand at Calvary again, just to scratch the surface, and we hear him cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We realize that he was forsaken of God, that between God the Father and God the Son, there was laid on him too, again, too high for your mind and mine to understand. There was laid on him an eternity in hell for all men, and on the cross in that suffering and death. Some way, somehow, he bore its equal for you and me, because he was God. And we stand and the world says, it's nonsense, it's foolishness. But there is no Christ, there is no cross in the human wisdom of mankind. And therefore there is this glorious assurance that in the wisdom of God, not only did the Son Jesus Christ bear the guilt and the punishment of the world, but in his righteousness there is life and salvation for all men. The world says how foolish to have a substitute, how foolish that in the blood, in the merit of one person there could be life and salvation for the world. Listen, if that is foolishness, then man must have thought of it first and man must have rejected it. But man has never dreamed of a Christ, of a Savior, who could be so big and yet a human being, born flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, only without sin, who could bring life and salvation for the world. That's the kind of a God. And is it any wonder that Saul of Tarsus, who realized his sin and the enormity of it, he looked at God and he says, God is a God worth knowing. And when he met God on the Damascus way, he realized that God is someone that is worthy of praise and thanksgiving. Look at his wisdom. Oh, it's deeper than the ocean. It's immense. It is inexhaustible. It is limitless. And that's why on Trinity we ought to say, God is a God worth knowing. I need him in my life. And therefore, I shall repent and put my trust in Christ as my Lord and as my Savior. We've all been reading and again been aware of the fact that the Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, has recently died. 
In the providence of God, I had wished that he might have lived so that the ecumenical conference might be reconvened this fall, which he was intending to do. A man of peace has died, to be sure. I had wished for an ecumenical conference because, say what you will, Christendom is still divided. And it is divided on a very basic and fundamental and important issue, and that is the way to heaven. Let's not forget it and all of the movements and the unions of Christians that the fundamental basis, how do you go to heaven? I had wished and I still hope that there will be an ecumenical meeting because in the Roman Catholic Church today there are two commissions that are studying that very problem. One studying the answer of the church and the other group studying the answer of the word of God. What does the word of God say? The word of God says that the way to heaven is Christ and Christ alone, Christ and his merits without any merit or worthiness in your life and mine. Therefore, if the way to heaven is Jesus Christ, then if you and I repent and put our trust in him, then there comes to us that peace which the world cannot give a peace that will never question our eternal salvation. And yet isn't it strange on that basis how many of us, even as Protestants, do not understand what it means to be saved by Christ alone or by grace alone? Just a moment. If you know what it means to be saved by grace, or if I do, it ought to mean this to us, that on the day of our death, and you see, you've got to die alone, and so do I, this thing isn't a matter of determining who's going to have the greatest following. It is a matter so important that when the day comes that you die and you die alone, that I die and that I die alone, that you and I know the way to heaven. That will be the only thing that matters. If you and I understand what it means to be saved by grace or by Christ alone, it should mean this on the day of your death and mine when we're ready to go into death alone without human help. It ought to mean this that we say something like this, Lord, I've done a lot of fine things in life in your kingdom. I have done a lot of good things. I have done them out of love and out of appreciation for my salvation in Christ. We ought to be able to say, Lord, I have given my life for you. I have been the kind of a steward that you would want me to be to a certain extent. But if you know what it means to be saved by grace, we ought to say, but Lord, these things end right here. Now, Lord, since I am ready to face death, I leave all of the fine things that I have done in life right here. They shall stay right here because they will do me no good when I take the next step into eternity. To be saved by grace means that then we turn in the spirit of this little Jew from Tarsus and that we say, but Lord, I know that I am the chief of sinners, even as Paul admitted it. And I know that all of these things that I have done, they don't save me. They are an expression of my love. I know that as regards my salvation, these things are filthy rags because they are selfish at best. They are not perfect. But I know a righteousness that is perfect, and that's the righteousness of my Christ and my Lord. Then if you and I really know what it means to be saved by grace, then we will stand and face death and we will say, Lord Jesus, I leave here every decent thing that I've ever done for you because from here on it won't do me a bit of good. 
I rest my hope, and faith simply means a simple trust, if you don't know what I'm talking about. I put my trust and my confidence in heaven, in you, Lord Jesus Christ, in your goodness, in your merit, in your righteousness, what you earned for me on Calvary, and I die in that trust and in that faith and in that confidence. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Do you know that? How many of us belong to organizations that talk about Christianity, where again, Christianity and salvation seems to be a human achievement? May I just say to you today, watch your soul. When death comes to you and me, we're going it alone. And if you don't know the Christ who says, I am the way, if you don't understand what it means to be saved by grace alone, without human achievement, my heartfelt prayer is you don't get out of this church this morning. You aren't ready to die until you know the story of grace. This is Trinity Sunday. And thank God the wisdom that the world calls foolishness, the wisdom that the world says is ridiculous because the world wants human achievement. Thank God that our God is a God worth knowing because he has made known wisdom and knowledge that no human being has ever dreamed of that like the malefactor on the cross who didn't have one decent thing in his favor, but who could turn in a real childlike trust and say, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You and I aren't ready to make that journey alone because we are on the wrong way. That's Trinity Sunday. And when again the little Jew from Tarsus who had met that Lord and who knew that he was chief of sinners looked at God and he said, Oh, what a God we've got worthy of again of our love and of our honor. What did he say? Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. You want to know some wisdom and knowledge that has been revealed that is above the wisdom of the world? Not only that our God is one God and yet three persons, not only that Jesus Christ, God's Son, atoned for the sins of the world, but God the Holy Spirit makes dead men alive again. The world says, you Christians, and talking about the Holy Spirit coming to a man and making a man that is dead alive again, how ridiculous and how foolish can you get? And you and I say, but isn't it a strange thing when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost that by means of his word that he can penetrate into a human heart that we are all born dead, we are born without the knowledge of God. You and I by nature don't even know who God is. You and I have no fear and love of God. We don't even know who he is to fear and love. You and I are born with concupiscence. We're born with a downward bent to hell. And you know it and so do I. We're all born going down to the barnyard. That's the way we're born because we're spiritually dead. We love dumb. We don't love God. And then isn't it strange that this Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity through the Word of God, comes and makes dead men alive again. What's the world going to do? It can yell all at once to and say, this is ridiculous, this is crazy. But look at the kingdom of God. Look at the hundreds and millions of us stood up and said, we've been born again of water and the Spirit. We have come into a living relationship with God. We have learned what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. And we have been born again. We are twice-born men men that have gone out and given their lives for Jesus Christ and the world says you're crazy and you're fools and you and I say oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God and oh it's such a marvelous wisdom because the Holy Spirit assures you and me that he worked with all the power that is needed on any man to bring any man to life when a man has come into this world being born dead in sin 
There isn't anybody within the sound of my voice who, if he allows God the Holy Spirit through the Word to come into his heart, but what that Spirit will make him alive. Any man within the sound of my voice right now who is going to be lost on the last day and repudiated is going to be lost because he said no to the Holy Spirit. It is not because the Holy Spirit did not work effectively in his heart. It is because a man repudiated it and said it's nonsense, it's ridiculous, it is only something to laugh at. And that's why on Trinity Sunday, oh, it's a strange festival. It's the time when we look at God. You and I ought to give him our thanks and say, I can't live without him. He is worthy of my trust. And then we ought to thank him that he has called us. Why did God ever call you? Why did he ever call me? If there was ever a time when I felt humble and wondered that same question, it's when I was down in Egypt and I was down in Luxor, 450 miles south of Cairo. I saw filth and poverty and ignorance, the likes of which I never realized existed in this world. People living in the tombs with the dead, groveling in dirt and in sand, blinded, nothing to eat, ignorant, dirty, filthy. When I stood in that squalor, I said to myself, I wonder why God ever called me in Jesus Christ. I wonder why I was born in a Christian home in America. I wonder why I was born where I was born and not over here. And I had to say to myself, I didn't deserve it and neither do you, nor does any man. Why were you and I born where we're born? and why the other man in the squalor where he finds himself. When you and I look and we grasp at the very knowledge and the wisdom of God, we say, God must have called us for a purpose. And when Paul realized and said, why did God call me? Remember when Paul said, he appeared to me as one born out of due time. The Greek word is fetus. The little Jew said, God appeared to me as a fetus, as, a, as an unborn premature child something that's horrible to look at. I'm a fetus. Why did God ever call me? And then he said, I, but he did call me, and I owe a debt of gratitude to the world. I'm going to share this, God. I'm going to pay my debt of gratitude. I'm going out, and I'm going to tell men about Jesus Christ. We're sitting here in America, and we've got some of the grandest blessings that God Almighty ever gave, and some of us sit on our hands. And we've never said to ourselves, why did God ever choose me? Why am I saved? And we don't turn our hand to sharing it with someone else. When are we going to say, here is a wisdom, the world can laugh at it, the world can call it nonsense, the world can say it's crazy. But oh, Saul of Tarsus, yes, the great war horse, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, it's the power of God to salvation to every man that believeth. He says unto the Jews, I know a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it's foolishness, but to them that are called the power of God and the wisdom of God. Today, have your eyes seen the glory? Can you say, mine eyes have seen the glory of a great God, and I can't live without him? Can you go out on the glory road and say, I love to tell the story? of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Trinity Sunday, 
Is God a God worth having? Oh, he is. Look at his wisdom and knowledge. Look at its depth, deeper than the ocean, limitless, vast, so much that you and I can never completely understand it. But oh, when we have experienced it in our lives, the wisdom of God and the power of God. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.